Inside the UN buffer zone, a short walk from the Paphos Gate on the western edge of the old city walls, the decaying hull of an old yellow Morris Minor car sits at the very northern edge of the Turkish ceasefire line. Opposite this, approximately 50 metres to the south, is a Greek Cypriot National Guard observation post where a soldier keeps watch over the northern edge of this area around the yellow car on 12-hour shifts, reporting any infractions by Turkish soldiers across the ceasefire line. Since 1974, infractions in this area have been aplenty, and in 1994, the last recorded incident of shooting inside the buffer zone occurred at this location, when a Turkish forces soldier ran to the back of yellow car to throw stones at the National Guard on duty. The Greek Cypriot soldier opened fire in the direction of the Turkish, fortunately missing. In an attempt to reduce tensions in this area, the UN brokered a deal between local military commanders on both sides whom disputed the exact ceasefire lines on the ground. The Turkish ceded to the UN's interpretation and agreed that their soldiers could only enter the area to the rear of the yellow car for a maximum of five minutes in every hour during their military patrols. And so, for the last 30 years, Turkish soldiers have enjoyed walking into the disputed area at yellow car, adhering to the five-minute rule by standing provocatively for the last five minutes of one hour and the first five minutes of the next hour. Any newbie Greek Cypriot dutifully watching on immediately reports this as a violation to the UN and so ensues a regular back and forth between liaison officers and operations centres angrily protesting each other's actions. And so the disputed area of Yellow Car continues. Welcome to Cyprus Untold, the unbiased and unprecedented podcast taking you inside the last 50 years of the United Nations buffer zone. Your host is Samuel Lewis Blanc, production by Ceasefire Limited. Hoskelden, Kalia Theres. Welcome back to Cyprus Untold for episode 2. As with the opening episode, you can view my photographs on Instagram right now at Cyprus Untold so you can visualise that yellow Morris Minor I was describing at the beginning that has caused and continues to cause upset for the United Nations forces in the centre of Nicosia. Another point to note from this image, if you're looking at it directly now which side do you consider to be the back of the car do you think it is the left hand side or the right hand side as you're looking at it now the reason i ask this is because there's another point of contention with this story around yellow car the turkish military who patrol this area they enter the tarmac you see in front of yellow car from the right-hand side of the image as you're looking, which is the eastern direction. Now, they interpret the back of the yellow car to mean the far left-hand side of the car. 
i.e. this gives them more room and space to patrol into and to claim as theirs. Now, the UN, who wrote that original agreement to allow them to patrol to the back of Yellow Car, very likely meant the actual back of the car, which is the right-hand side of the vehicle if you look closely. You can just about work out, even in its current state and crumbling decay, you can see which side is the back, which is the most eastern edge. However, this was not explicitly documented or discussed at the time. Not as far as I'm aware from the archives and the documents that we have in the UN anyway. Therefore, Turkish soldiers have been taking advantage of this loophole ever since. And as we move through these Green Line stories each episode, you will see this trend emerge as time and again the UN failed to document or to get either side to agree to these intricate details. And we can discuss later on who you feel shares the weight of blame in these circumstances. Is it the UN for possibly not enforcing the ceasefire agreements or the opposing forces for taking advantage of UN inaction and lack of governance? You can comment now on the yellow car photo and tell me what you think and how we might better manage this situation. For now, let's park the Morris Minor and yellow car and we will revisit the Green Line stories again on the next episode. Okay, back to building our historical knowledge our baseline of historical information before we get to invasion, intervention, ceasefire lines drawn, and then all the activities that followed, which we're going to get into in great detail in later episodes. So we're picking up from that first episode where we cantered through ancient history of Cyprus and we briefly discussed the importance of the Ottoman period, especially in relation to the emergence of Turkish Cypriots, who by the late 1800s made up around 20 to 30% of the population. Now, at this time, the Ottomans had started entering a period of relative decline. They were short on resources and in need of international support following a defeat to the Russians in the Balkans. Um, they subsequently turned to the British in 1878 uh, by granting them administrative control of Cyprus in order to gain support at um, the Congress of Berlin. Now, this administrative control was termed a protectorate of the British Empire. What does that mean in practice? Well, it's a form of colonial administration the British Empire did not have sovereignty over the island. Instead, it just came under its protection and certainly its influence. Interestingly, the majority Greek Cypriots at the time welcomed British rule. And I quote from uh, Bishop Kittium. Apologies uh, for the terrible pronunciation, I'm sure. And he was addressing the British High Commissioner who was arriving at Larnaca in July uh, 1878. And he said, We accept the change of government 
because we believe that Great Britain will eventually help Cyprus, just like the Innoan Islands, unite Cyprus with Mother Greece. Now hopefully you recall that phrase from episode 1, Enosis. That is what Greek Cypriots still sought and believed would happen with the arrival of the British. Now this was in large part due to the achievement of other island nations that the British Empire had restored to Greece in the 19th century. Now, unfortunately, that was never Britain's intention uh, to support Enosis. They did, however, significantly modernise the island, as I believe both, both Turkish and Greek Cypriots hoped would happen as well. In particular, the British, as they did across the empire, developed roads, hospitals, schools, financial institutions, civil service, um, which had all become very stagnant under the Ottomans. In Gnosis, on the other hand, a, a famous phrase uh, I, I recall from many uh, manuscripts and docu-series you will see on this period, it was a complete anathema to the British establishment. Now, we have to slightly fast forward to World War I, when I'm sure many of you history buffs are already ahead of me, working out what came next. The British and the Ottomans found themselves on opposing sides. So what did the British do? They annexed Cyprus, which meant from 1914, the island of Cyprus was technically under British military occupation. Before we dive into that next stage of evolution for Cyprus and its peoples, what this military occupation means and what comes next, I want to highlight two significant events, which I know firsthand from sitting in negotiations with staunch Greek and Turkish Cypriots, both sides are very quick to forget these events ever took place in lieu of their own versions of history. Firstly, 1915. Britain actually offered Cyprus to Greece. This they wanted in exchange for their own support in World War I against Germany, Austria-Hungary and of course the Ottomans. Greece declined this offer. Secondly, 1923, Mustafa Ataturk, the founder and military leader of the newly created Republic of Turkey following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, he renounced all claims to former Ottoman territory. He even signed a treaty called the Treaty of Louisiane, which included Cyprus. Like I say, two huge historic events which are often forgotten about by both sides because Britain did offer to give it Greece and Mustafa Ataturk, ruler of Turkey, said we don't need Cyprus back. We're now in 1925. A decade has passed since Britain annexed Cyprus from the Ottomans, who are no longer on the scene, and the, the new Turkish state has signalled that it has no intentions of claiming back lost lands. 
And so Cyprus enters a, another era of foreign rule as the British make it a crown colony. I'm sure many ordinary Cypriots notice very little change, but at the top of government for Cyprus, they now have a, a new structure in place headed by a British governor. I don't want to bore you, um, those of you who are listening with the intricacies of early 20th century British political structures. Uh, even I will become dreary with the sound of my monotone explanation. But if you are interested in researching this in great depth, fill your boots online and pay particular attention to the um, representational differences in Parliament as often Crown Colonies actually had none, interestingly. However, something I will bring your attention to now, under British rule in Cyprus, appointed and elected members of the ruling classes, including the Executive Council, uh, they were split, deliberately so, at a 3 to 1 ratio between Greek Cypriots to Turkish Cypriots. This was based originally on a 1881 census carried out by the British, as well as subsequent reports they maintained throughout the early 20th century, as they did in, in all colonial parts of the British Empire. Where this bore most significance was in the Legislative Council. Apologies if I can't say that correctly. Um, so you had 18 members were Greek Cypriot and 6 members Turkish Cypriot. There was also an additional 12 members appointed by the governor himself. The result of this so often meant stalemate. Uh, it meant leaving deciding votes on legislative matters to the governor himself. Why? Because more often than not, the hand-picked members selected really as yes-men for the governor would side with the Turkish Cypriots as it was their support that was required on crucial votes to prevent any legislation that might be pro-Enosis. In hindsight, of course, we can all view this now as a terrible idea. However well-intentioned it may have seemed at the time, trying to ensure equal representation on the island, uh, but it did not go down well in those early years of Crown Colony rule. In fact, discontent brewed as political status quo remained, taxes increased, and there was no immediate prospect for Enosis. This bubbled over in 1931, when violent protests spread across the island in all cities, major towns, and over 200 villages. In Nicosia, the capital, that's where they saw the worst rioting. Government House, a, a grand colonial home to the British High Commissioner, it was set ablaze and it was reduced to ashes. There are some fascinating images online where you can still see the house smoking the next morning. Where that was is actually now the site of the Republic of Cyprus's presidential palace. Interestingly, so you, you can drive straight past it in Nicosia and, and look upon that historic area. Unsurprisingly, uh, for this era back in the 1930s of uh, the British Empire, the British authorities' response was 
encompassing, all-encompassing, aimed at restricting civil liberties. The constitution was suspended and all political activity prohibited, except for the executive council, which had only governor-appointed members anyway, and they were limited to domestic advisory roles. Um, censorship of the press followed, there were rules against flying Greek flags, as well as curtailing of schools from teaching the Greek language. And even though the Turkish Cypriots had not partaken in any of the violence in 1931, they too were victim to this crackdown of ethnic and cultural activities. Furthermore, and probably the most egregious from the Greek Cypriots' perspective, the British administration placed restrictions on the Church of Cyprus after they discovered that a number of the clergy in the Church of Cyprus had galvanised anti-British pro-Enosis rallies. As a result, the bishops of Kittion and Kyrenia were exiled from Cyprus, and any uh, archbishop could only be appointed with the governor's approval. Now again, with, with our measured understanding of history and possibly human nature, we can all understand that this is no way to garner support from a population. Instead, it just fed the Cypriot narrative that the British were not there for the benefit of the Cypriot people. So let's see what this could possibly lead to after a quick break. I said it would be a quick break. So, 1930s Cyprus, British suspension of political and religious freedoms, a whole generation being denied a voice. Maybe that's what the British rulers had intended. Maybe at the time they thought it would rid the idea of the Gnosis, perhaps a generation onward, not feel so strongly as its ideas could not be shared in public and maybe it would become a myth, not a viable political option. But of course, as you will know listening, these kinds of harsh measures against people's liberties just tend to strengthen the group's resolve and throughout history there are countless examples of imperial rule forcing political groups to quote-unquote run underground or lie dormant waiting for their moment. Cyprus was no different. However, that wait or pause before the impending revolt which we can all see is on the horizon would actually be over 20 years in the making. Of course, World War II had a profound impact on the region and we will revisit that period in the very first episode when we take an in-depth look at one of the most hotly contested areas of the buffer zone. For now, I will say that Cypriots, for the majority, were staunch supporters of the Allies in World War II, and as many as 6,000 Cypriots fought under British command in the Greek campaign alone. But as I say, we'll come back to explore that in more detail. What we want to understand right now is that during this time, between 1941 and 1951, there is a steady relaxation of the measures imposed on Cyprus in 1931. Political gatherings are allowed again, exiled members of the church return to the island and there's actually a surge 
um, for a while in support for a communist political movement in Cyprus. But the ever-prominent Church of Cyprus, Greek Orthodox, remember, was steadfastly opposed to communism, I believe even more so than being opposed to British rule. And with its ability to hold gatherings, deliver messages to mass population, organise people, reach back for support to mainland Greece through the church, even to raise funds, the leader of the church in Cyprus at this time, a gentleman called Macarius II, he begins to lead a renewed effort for unity with Greece. He even goes so far to arrange a plebiscite in 1950. Do not worry yourself if it is not clear what a plebiscite is. I had no idea either the first time I heard that word. It is basically a mass vote on an important public question. A referendum, for example, in or out of the European Union comes to mind. Or in this case, the options given to Greek Cypriots, note, only Greek Cypriots, was option one, we demand union with Greece. Option two, we are against the union of Cyprus with Greece. The result from nearly 225,000 votes, making up 90% of Cypriots at the time residing on the island, was a 96% vote in favour of Enosis. This was a colossus undertaking by Macarius, who managed to orchestrate this plebiscite under the noses of the British, who predictably challenged the legitimacy of the vote and had actually refused already to hold their own referendums on such a question. So where could the Greek Cypriots now turn for support? Materially, politically, financially? Sadly, Macarius II was not able to see it through, as he died shortly after the historic vote that he had organised. Nevertheless, in his absence, a new leader for the Greek Cypriots stepped forward. He was now the youngest archbishop in the history of Cyprus, Macarius III, aged just 37. And like his predecessor, he was not going to drop the question of a gnosis with the British. And at his inauguration speech, evidence of his intentions were made clear. He pledged, We will not rest until union with Mother Greece has been achieved. Would this now be the turning point for the Greek Cypriots? Would the British cede in any way to their demands? What did the Turkish Cypriots make of all this? They were just as entitled to determine what happens on the island of Cyprus. We will start to answer these questions and more in the next episodes as we continue to build the foundations of our knowledge before entering the even more complex and frustrating world of the buffer zone post-1974. So please listen to the next episode of Cyprus Untold to find out how this story unfolds into chaos, bloodshed and how this further spirals into an international disaster still dormant to this day, 50 years later, as the past of Cyprus is left in pieces. Thank you for listening to Cyprus Untold. If you would like any questions answered on the podcast, or you'd like to submit 
your supporting stories, photographs and memories of Cyprus throughout the ages, please message me direct on Instagram or YouTube at Cyprus Untold. Alternatively, send via email to info at ceasefire.world. Remember to like, subscribe and share wherever you get your podcast. For now, Oshikal and Dio. Goodbye.